Chapter Six of American Leaders and Heroes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Piotr Nater. American Leaders and Heroes by Wilbur F. Gordy, Miles Standish, and the Pilgrims, fifteen eighty four to sixteen fifty six. Only thirteen years after Jamestown was settled, a colony of Englishmen, very different in character from the gold hunters of Virginia, landed on the Massachusetts coast. These men came not to seek fortunes, but rather to establish a community with high ideals of political and religious life. With them they brought their wives and children, and a determination to build for themselves permanent homes in the new world. Before tracing their fortunes in America, let us glance backward a few years and see them as they were in their English homes. At the present time, people can choose their own church and worship as they please, but it was not always so, even in England. In that country, during the reign of Queen Elizabeth, there was much religious disturbance, and many people were punished because they would not worship as the law required. There were Englishmen who, while loving the English church, wished to make its services more simple, or, as they said, purify its forms and ceremonies. These people were, for this reason, called Puritans. Others disliked the ceremonial and doctrines of the church so much that they wished to form a separate body and worship after their own ideas. These were called separatists or independents. The separatists met for service on the Lord's Day in the home of William Brewster, one of their chief men, in the little village of Scrooby. For a year they tried to keep together and worship as an independent body, but as the laws of England required that all should worship in the established church, they found that they could not do this without being hunted down, thrown into prison, and sometimes beaten, and even hanged. They endured these persecutions as long as they could, and then some of them decided to leave their own land and seek a home in Holland, where they would be free to worship God as they pleased. James I, then King of England, being unwilling that they should go, they had much difficulty in carrying out their plan, but in 1608 they escaped and went to Amsterdam. From Amsterdam they went to Leiden, and finally from Leiden to America by way of England. By reason of their wanderings they became known later as pilgrims. Since they were poor people, the pilgrims were obliged to accept any work that would enable them to make a living. In Leiden, many found employment in the manufacture of woolen goods. Here they were prosperous enough and enjoyed freedom of worship, but were unwilling to remain with the Dutch, fearing that their children would forget English. For although England had been unkind to them, they cherished their native language, customs, and habits of life. They had heard much about the English colony in Virginia, and the association of their own people in a free land appealed strongly to their English hearts. To Virginia, therefore, they decided to go, believing that there they could worship in peace and harmony, and bring up their children in sturdy English thought and feeling. But it is often easier to plan than to accomplish, and so it was with these home-yearning pilgrims. Having decided to leave Holland, they found practical difficulties to be overcome, the most serious of which were King James's opposition to their going to America and lack of funds for the long and expensive journey. He permitted them to sail, however, and agreed not to disturb them in America so long as they pleased him. 
After getting the king's consent and borrowing money on hard terms, these earnest men and women made ready to sail for their new home in the forest wilds of America. They embarked in the Speedwell at Delft Haven, a port twelve miles from Leyden, and sailed for Southampton on the south coast of England. Here they joined some friends who had made ready another vessel, the now historic Mayflower, but a brief delay was occasioned by lack of money. In order to secure the necessary amount, about $400, it was necessary to sell some of their provisions, including much of the butter. Funds being secured, the two vessels at last put to sea, but twice returned on account of a leak in the speedwell. Finally, deeming that vessel unseaworthy, 102 pilgrims, including men, women, children, and servants, took passage in the Mayflower, sailing from Plymouth, September 16, 1620. After a most trying and tempestuous voyage lasting over nine weeks, land was sighted, November 19, 1620. But instead of arriving off the coast of Virginia as they had planned, the storm-beaten voyagers found themselves in what is now the harbor of Provincetown. Before landing, they entered into a solemn agreement to make and obey such laws as should be needful for the good of the colony. John Carver was chosen governor. Not being able, on account of the shallow water, to get the Mayflower to a point where they could step ashore, the men had to carry the women in their arms and wade several rods, though the weather was so cold that their clothing, wet from the ocean spray, froze stiff. Once on land, they fell upon their knees and thanked God for bringing them in safety through the many furious storms. Then immediately the women set to work lighting fires, boiling water, and washing clothes, while the men stood on guard to repel the Indians in case they might make an attack. It soon became clear that Cape Cod was an unfit place for a settlement, and an exploring party, with Miles Standish as military leader, was selected to look for a more suitable one. As military leader, Miles Standish at once became conspicuous in the life of the colony. He was born in Lancashire, England, in 1584, of a noble family, but was in some way deprived of his estates. Going to the continent, he became a valiant and daring soldier in the Netherlands. Feeling a deep interest in the cause of the pilgrims, he joined them when they sailed for America in the Mayflower and made their fortunes his own. Small of stature, quick-witted, hot-tempered, and ready to brave any danger, this stout-hearted man was a fitting leader for the little pilgrim army of something like a score of men who were obliged to defend themselves and their families against wild beasts and unfriendly Indians. Many of the pilgrim soldiers wore armor to protect themselves against Indian arrows. In some instances, this armor consisted of a steel helmet and iron breastplates, and in others of quilted coats of cotton wool. Like Miles Standish, some of the soldiers had swords at their sides, and all carried either flintlock or matchlock muskets, so big and heavy that before they could fire them off, they had to rest them upon supports stuck into the ground for the purpose. Standish's daring little band of soldiers explored some of the coast on the day the Mayflower anchored. The next Wednesday, after landing, they started out a second time in search of a suitable place for settlement. As they skirted the coast, landing here and there, they saw and heard Indians who fled at their approach. Soon they came upon some mounds, out of which they dug bows and arrows and other utensils. 
These, however, they replaced, because they believed the mounds to be Indian graves. In a rude and deserted house they also found an iron kettle. Digging into still another mound, these home hunters were delighted to discover large baskets filled with ears of Indian corn, red, white, and yellow. As they were sorely in need of food after their long voyage, they took with them some of the corn, for which they were careful to pay the Indians later. An amusing incident occurred on this otherwise serious journey. Before they got back to the Mayflower, William Bradford, who afterward became the second governor of the Plymouth colony, met with an accident that must have caused even the stern pilgrim soldiers to smile. Picking his way through the underbrush of the wood, he stepped unwittingly into a deer trap and was suddenly jerked up into the air, where he dangled by one leg until his friends released him, none the worse for the ludicrous occurrence. After spending more than three weeks in vain efforts to find a place for settlement, a party of ten picked men, including Governor Carver, William Bradford, and Captain Miles Standish, set out on the afternoon of December the 16th, in the midst of a driving storm, for another search. It was so cold that the spray, falling upon them, soon covered their clothing with coats of ice, but the voyagers, though suffering terribly, pushed courageously forward. At the close of the next day, having anchored in a creek, they constructed a barricade, not only as a protection from the bitter weather, but as a means of defense against the Indians. This three-sided barricade, made of bows, stakes, and logs, was about as high as a man, and was open on the leeward side. Within this shelter they lighted a big fire, which they kept roaring all night long. Then, lying down around it, with their feet towards the burning logs, they wrapped their cloaks closely about them, and fell asleep beneath the trees and the open sky, one man always keeping guard. Next morning they were astir early, ready for the stubborn work of another day. Some of them had carried their muskets down to the shore, leaving them there to be put aboard the boat a little later, and were returning to breakfast when the shout, Indians! followed by a shower of arrows, greeted them. The woods seemed full of red warriors, whose blood-curdling war-whoops must have struck fear to the hearts of the small band of explorers. However, the white men bravely stood their ground, and with cool arm and steady hand so terrified the savages that they soon took to their heels. Once out to sea again, the pilgrims encountered a furious gale that threatened to swamp their frail boat. All day long they were tossed about on the storm-swept sea, and just before dark an immense wave almost filled the boat and carried off the rudder. A little later a fierce gust of wind broke the mast into three pieces. Then, without mast or rudder, the dauntless men struggled at the oars until morning, when they reached land and found themselves on an island which they named Clark's Island, in honor of the Mayflower's mate. Some further explorations revealed a suitable place for settlement. It had a good harbor, a stream of excellent drinking water nearby, and, at a little distance from the shore, a stretch of high ground, affording a good location for a fort. In addition to these advantages, there was a large field of cleared land, on which the Indians had raised corn. Much cheered with their discovery, the explorers returned with their report. After as little delay as possible, the pilgrims landed on the spot chosen for their new home, the spot which John Smith had several years before named Plymouth. Note. 
According to tradition, the pilgrims, in landing, stepped on a small granite boulder, since known as Plymouth Rock. The date of landing, December 21st, is called Forefathers' Day. End of note. At once they set to work with heroic energy, some felling trees, some sawing, some splitting, and some carrying logs to the places of building. They first erected a rude log-house, twenty feet square, which would serve for a common storehouse, for shelter, and for other purposes, and began the building of five separate private dwellings. They built also a hospital and a meeting-house. The houses were all alike in form and size. After cutting down trees and sawing logs of suitable length, the men dragged them by hand along the ground, for there were no horses or other beasts of burden, and laid them one upon another, thus forming the walls. Probably the chimneys and fireplaces were of stone, the crevices being plastered with mortar made by mixing straw and mud, and oil paper taking the place of glass for windows. At the best, these log-houses were poor makeshifts for dwellings in the severe winter weather along the bleak New England coast. For furnishing these simple homes, the pilgrims had brought over such articles as large armchairs, wooden settles, high-posted beds, trackle-beds for young children, and cradles for babies. Every home had also its spinning-wheel. The cooking was done in a big fireplace. Here the housewives baked bread in large ovens, roasted meat by putting it on iron spits which they had to keep turning in order to cook all sides of the roast alike and boiled various kinds of food in large kettles hung over the fire as there were no friction matches in those days it was the custom to kindle a fire by striking sparks with a flint and steel into dry tinder stuff having once started a fire which was no easy matter they had to be very careful not to let it go out and for that reason covered the coals at bedtime with ashes. In the place of candles or lamps, pitch-pine knots furnished light at night. We can well imagine the pilgrim boys and girls resting on the settles in the evening and reading by the blaze from the huge fireplace. In this first winter, lack of good food and warm clothing, exposure to the cold, and various kinds of hardship bred disease in the little colony. At one time, only seven men were well enough to take care of the sick and suffering. One of these seven was the fearless soldier, Miles Standish. He now became a tender nurse, and joined with William Bradford and Elder Brewster in making fires, washing clothes, cooking food, and in other plain household duties. By spring, about half of the colonists, including Governor Carver and Rose Standish, wife of captain miles standish had died notwithstanding all the sufferings however not one of the pilgrims went back on the mayflower when she sailed for england but so weak had the colony become through loss of able-bodied men that corn was planted on the graves to keep the indians from learning how many had died one day in early spring the pilgrims were startled by the sudden appearance of an indian somerset by name who cried in english welcome englishman a week later he returned with a friend named squanto who had formerly lived at plymouth with other indians all of whom had been swept away by a plague note squanto had been taken to england by some white men in sixteen fourteen end of note squanto was glad to get back to his old home once more he afterward came to live with the pilgrims acting as their messenger and interpreter 
and showing them how to hunt and how to catch fish from him they learned how to plant corn putting one or two herring as a fertilizer in every hill they would watch for a while to prevent the wolves from digging up and eating the fish and in due time would have an abundant return about a week after samoset's first appearance he returned and announced the approach of massasoit an indian chief living at mount hope some forty miles southwest of plymouth captain miles standish marched out with his men to escort the indian chief to meet governor carver in an unfinished house the pilgrims had spread upon the floor a green mat which they covered with cushions for the chief and the governor when the chief who was a man of fine presence and dignified bearing was seated upon the cushions governor carver was escorted to the place of meeting by the pilgrim soldiers amid the beating of drums and the blowing of trumpets after the governor had kissed the chief's hand the two men agreed to be friends and keep peace between the white man and the red the friendship thus romantically begun lasted for more than fifty years before massasoit's departure the pilgrims gave him two skins and a copper necklace as summer came on the condition of the pilgrims improved there was much less sickness and food was more easily obtained on the arrival of autumn the corn and barley planted by the pilgrims yielded a good return and ducks geese wild turkeys and deer could be secured by hunting when massasoit with ninety men came to see the pilgrims in the autumn the indians brought some deer and the pilgrims furnished food from their supplies so that a three days feast was held this was the first celebration of the new england thanksgiving but not all of the indian neighbors were so friendly as massasoit and his tribe canonicus chief of the narangansets sent to plymouth an insolent greeting in the form of a number of arrows tied with a snake's skin the pilgrims on their part stuffed the snake's skin full of powder and bullets and in defiance sent it back to canonicus so deeply impressed were the indians by this fearless act that they let the whites alone believing it wise to be prepared against indian attacks however the pilgrims surrounded the settlement with palisades and erected on burial hill a building on the flat roof of which cannon were placed the room downstairs serving as a meeting-house energetic in practical affairs they were equally zealous in religious observance for they were very regular in their church attendance their sabbaths began with sundown on saturday and lasted until sundown on sunday the beating of a drum on sunday morning was the signal for the men to meet at the door of captain miles standish's house from which they marched three abreast followed by their governor in a long robe with the minister on his right and miles standish on his left after the men came the women then the children and last of all the servants on entering the church they sat in order of rank the old men in one part of the church the young men in another mothers with their little children in a third young women in a fourth and the boys in a fifth the services lasted all the morning then after an intermission for lunch at noon they began again and continuing all the afternoon but on the coldest days of winter only footstoves were used to heat the meeting-house nor was this the only discomfort the pilgrims had in their church worship for even these good people found it sometimes hard to remain awake during the long services and it was the duty of the constable to see that all kept their eyes open 
If this official saw a boy asleep, he rapped him with the end of a wand. If he saw a woman nodding, he brushed her gently with a hare's foot, which was on the other end of the wand. The pilgrims had their town meetings in the meeting-house, where they held their religious services. At town meetings all the men wore their hats. In voting they used corn and beans, a grain of corn meaning yes, and a bean meaning no. Such was the life of the little company of true-hearted men and women at Plymouth. Small in number as they were, they remained brave in spirit, amid surroundings which tested all their powers of endurance. For several years Miles Standish did valiant service there, and then went to live at Duxbury, where he was soon joined by some of his pilgrim friends, among whom was John Alden. Here the good captain remained the rest of his life, except when he was needed as military leader by the colony. He died many years later, in 1656, leaving behind him a good name with the pilgrims and the rest of the world. End of chapter 6